Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And now join me in the New Testament, the book of Second Peter. Second Peter, towards the end of the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 3, and this text will be our focus this morning. Second Peter 3, verses 1 to 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. 
Father, would you help us as we come to these exalted words, promises for you that from you that seem impossible as we look at our daily lives? Would you help us to come to these words with faith, believing that they are gifts from you, even when we don't understand them, even when we aren't sure what to do with them? Would you help us to come humble, desiring to hear from you, trusting that as we open your word together as your people, your spirit is present, teaching, convicting, comforting. Help us to listen this morning. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive your life-giving word and may it produce fruit for your glory in our lives, in our community. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to answer this question out loud, uh, but what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? You ever have trouble answering that question? I do. Uh, Some people have their very detailed list, uh, but I struggle to answer the question, what do you want for Christmas? And it's not because I'm super spiritual and have no need of material possessions. It's just because I'm indecisive. Well, whether you need help or not, these texts that we have just read teach us what to want. Not for Christmas, but as a result of Christmas. These Texts teach us what we should desire as a response to what we celebrate in the Christmas season. Because the birth of Jesus, that baby in a manger, that wasn't an isolated event. You see, when Jesus was born, that was God beginning to keep the promises that he made through prophets like Isaiah. And as Peter, in this letter, reaches back to Isaiah and talks about these new heavens and new earth, as he reaches back to this promise, Peter is saying, God has begun to keep those promises, but he hasn't finished. This work isn't done. And so the Apostle Peter holds up these promises, these expectations to us, and says, want this. He wants to stir up a longing in us, an anticipation in us that exists not only in December, but throughout all of our lives. One of the reasons I appreciate the practice of Advent is that it complicates Christmas with this message. It says, yes, Jesus has come, and that means celebration. That means joy. But that celebration isn't complete. It's open-ended because the joy of Jesus coming should lead you directly to a desire for his return. So that after the presents are open and after you've eaten that massive meal, you should still be hungry. And the old-fashioned word for that hunger is hope. This is what Peter wants to do with us. He wants to say, yes, Jesus has come, but he is going to return. And so I want to stir up in you a longing, a desire, a hope. 
So let's come to this text. Let's come to this text and let it teach us what to want. Let it teach us how to live in hope. Three aspects of Christian hope that we find here in 2 Peter 3, as it uses the prophet Isaiah. Three aspects of hope. The content of hope, the reason for hope, and the life of hope. So first of all, the content of hope. As Christians, our future is not wispy, floaty spirit beings on clouds strumming harps in an eternal worship service. That's not our future. Remember, the Bible begins in creation and ends in what? New creation. And all throughout Scripture, as it talks about the future, in places like Isaiah 65 and 2 Peter 3, as the Scripture talks about the future, it doesn't talk about this sort of disembodied, floaty existence. It talks about a new heavens and a new what? A new earth. Understand that the New Testament doesn't dismiss the physicality of Isaiah's promise. The New Testament delays it and expands it in meaning, but it did not dismiss the physicality of this promise. Jesus is bringing, when he returns, not shiny spirits, but a new heavens and a new earth. And maybe you want more details about that, but sorry, I don't have them. (laughs) Because as Scripture talks about this future, it tends to go to the language of metaphor and analogy. I think suggesting that, that this future is beyond our imagination. It's beyond our language to capture it, to capture the details of what it will be like. It is so far beyond what we can think, what we can conceive. But this is clear. It will be an existence without injustice. It will be an existence without sorrow and tears. It will be an existence without death. All that is wrong will be made right. All that is crooked will be made straight. In the overused but great words of Tolkien, all that is sad will come untrue. How? How does that happen? Well, verse 7, fire. It happens by fire. There is a fire, Peter says, there is a fire coming that will burn up all that does not belong in a world made right. Now, class that has studied the book of Exodus over the past couple of months, what do we know about fire in the Bible? It is usually a symbol of what? It's a symbol of God's presence. His unique and special presence. And it is a potent symbol because fire both has the potential to both destroy and transform, purify. So that's the fire. This is the fire that Peter is talking about. The fire that is coming, it is God. It is his presence so that in verse 10 and verse 12, he says, what will burn up all that doesn't belong in a world made right? It is the day of the Lord. Another concept from the Old Testament prophets, this 
moment when God, in the fullness of His holy presence, comes near. So the image is this. God, holy, the fullness of His holy presence, descending from heaven, burning up the heavenly bodies as He comes, and arriving on this earth to destroy all that is in opposition to His design and His desires, and to renew what belongs to Him. To make this world a place fit for His presence and for His redeemed people. That's what you should want, Peter says. That is the concept, the content of your hope. Christian hope, the ultimate Christian hope, isn't that you go to heaven when you die. That's intermediate. The ultimate Christian hope is that heaven descends and transforms the world. That heaven descends and raises you up bodily to live and enjoy a new creation. Now that, that's crazy, right? You're sitting across a table from one of your friends in Tallahassee who's not a Christian or maybe nominally religious, and you're telling them this. They're going to look at you and say, really? You really believe that? I mean, that, that's a good ending for a fantasy novel, but a truth on which to build your life? Really? We think of that skepticism as something modern. So progress in science and technology has taught us to ask questions like that, to have skepticism like that. It's not modern. It existed in the first century. It is an ancient skepticism. Peter knows it, and he deals with it here in this chapter. So consider, secondly, the reason for our hope. If the content of our hope is this new heavens and new earth, why should we hope in that? Why should we believe in that? And Peter deals with skepticism in two ways. He responds in a couple of ways. He, he goes to what has happened. He takes us to the flood, to the story of the flood in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. You have to know that the book of Genesis tells the story of the flood as a story of remaking creation. So God in judgment puts the world back in water. Watery chaos now covers all creation, but then he makes dry land reappear. And then he speaks to Noah and his family, and he gives them the same instructions that he gave to Adam and Eve. He says, go and multiply, fill the earth. It's a new creation. And so what Peter is doing is saying, all right, you look at, around at your day-to-day existence. This promise of a new creation, that seems ridiculous. But he says, on a smaller scale, it's happened before. God has done it before with water by his word. And on a greater scale, he will do it again with fire by his word. It's happened once, 
And on a much grander scale, it will happen again. And then Peter moves from what has happened to who God is in verses 8 to 10. He moves from the story of the flood to talk about the character of God. And he says, God relates to time differently than you do. God measures time differently than you do. He defines slow and fast differently than you do. And this is beautiful. Notice what is God's time measurement. What is God's scale when he measures time? Verse 9. It's patience. It's patience. God is absolutely committed to the renewal of all things. But he longs for us to repent and to turn to him and to join him in that renewal. And that's why time exists. The measure of time is the mercy of God. And that's why we can have hope. We can have hope not because of what we perceive. Not because of what we see and feel in our day-to-day existence. We can have hope because of what God has done and because of who He is. Now, another moment of honesty with the skeptic. That teaching... What I just said, what Peter is saying here in this chapter, that assumes that what the Bible teaches about God, his character and his actions, it assumes that what the Bible teaches about that is trustworthy. And I can't assume that everyone in this room shares those assumptions. And we certainly can't assume that everyone in our city, in Tallahassee, Florida, shares those assumptions about the trustworthiness of the teaching of Scripture. But at the very least, as we hear this, we still have to deal with a question. If you're going to reject what Peter says about God, about his judgment, about his mercy, if you're going to reject those assumptions, you still have to answer the question, what do you do with time? How do you think about time? The progression of days and nights, how do you measure that? How do you think about that? And that question is there in our culture. Richard Linkletter, director, came out with a a film this year called Boyhood, and it's at the top of the list of of a lot of those who are saying this is the best movie of the year. And very interesting process, he filmed this movie for 12 years because he wanted to show the impact of time on his characters, and especially the main character, who begins the movie as a seven-year-old boy. He wanted to show him growing into adulthood. And one reviewer said that in this movie, and actually in much of his work, Linkletter uses time as a character in the story. Why? Because he's provoking this question to us as a culture. What are we going to do with time? What do we do with this movement that happens to everyone? What do we do to the changes 
that happen to us as day moves into night, moves into day, moves into night, moves into day, moves into night. This seemingly ceaseless flow of time. What do we do with that? Does it have meaning? Does it have purpose? Does it have a design? Well, if you want to, if you want to reject the assumptions of Peter, about God and his judgment and his mercy, you have to answer those questions no. You have to admit that the flow of time is a blind, natural force with no purpose, no design, and no meaning. And if you admit that, then then there are some other questions you have to deal with. If that's true, if if time is just this natural blind force, where does human dignity come from? Linklater wants to say to us by focusing on this young man, his life matters, but why does it matter? If we are willing to receive the assumptions of Peter, if we're willing to receive this message, then we have to answer those questions with a resounding yes. Yes, time is meaningful. It has purpose and it has a design. Why? Because it is the extension of God's mercy. As one author said, time is pregnant with the patience of God. This seemingly ceaseless flow of days and nights is God's invitation to us to return to Him. How will we respond? How will we respond to the invitation of this day and night and this coming week? Peter wants a response from us, and he doesn't just want the response of assent. He doesn't want us to hear it and say, okay, yeah, I believe that. That's true. He wants us to live like it's true. Okay, so thirdly, the life of hope. Peter Peter not only wants us to affirm the truth of this future, to long for this future, to believe in this future, he wants us to live because of this future. And so according to this passage, hope should produce holiness. Longing for the new heavens and the new earth should lead to a godly life. Isn't that the flow of the passage? All this talk about the future in verses 1 to 10 leads to teaching about the present in verses 11 to 13. Peter says, if you embrace then, it should impact now. It should produce a godly and holy Life, which is to say it should produce a life that looks like it belongs to God. It should produce a life that reflects God's priorities and God's desires. Now please notice the order. This is vital. Holiness doesn't produce hope. It's the other way around. Living a godly life doesn't 
earn this bright future. If you back up to the beginning of 2 Peter, he makes it very clear that the glorious future, as well as the power for present godly living, all of that is a gift of God to us through Jesus Christ. So, holiness doesn't earn hope. Hope should produce holiness. Peter's point is this. It is that because of Jesus, this glorious future... It belongs to you. It surely and certainly belongs to you. So, live like you belong to this future. This moment when all that is wrong with the world will be burned away and only what is good and true and beautiful will remain. Live in a way that anticipates that moment. In your relationships, in your job, with how you spend your time and money, reflect the values of God's coming new creation. Want that day so that it shapes this day. It shapes how you treat the people who are sitting beside you. It shapes what you do with your money. It shapes how you approach your vocation, your job, your time as a student. You know, the, uh, from, from English class, you remember the literary device of foreshadowing? Where something seemingly small and significant happens early in a story that anticipates something much more significant that happens towards the end of the story? That's us. That's your life. That is this community. We are to be a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth. As we love our God, as we love one another, as we love our neighbors as ourselves, we anticipate that glorious future. Not perfectly, not completely, but genuinely. A pinprick of light from the coming new creation. That's your life. That's this community. And we will live that way only. We will live that way only if we trust God's promises enough to wait. Because see... As you endeavor to live a a holy and a godly life, you are not going to feel, you're not going to experience the fullness of what is coming. You must wait for that fullness and you will only continue to endeavor to live a godly and a holy life if you can learn patience for that fullness. And so often the reason we struggle to live in this way is because we're impatient. We want that fullness now, and so we turn to our own ways to try to manufacture it. Irenaeus, early church theologian and pastor, said, Sin is fundamentally haste. Sin is fundamentally haste. It is us trying to take what is promised to us in the future and make it a reality by our own power in the present. 
And so if we are going to live lives that anticipate God's new creation, we must learn to wait. My youngest son, Sam, just turned two, and he's having a couple of different book experiences in his life right now. So he has this book about tractors and trucks and all the greatest machines in the world, and he absolutely adores this book, and he comes up to me and he hands it to me and he climbs in my lap and we open it and he says, mint truck, and that means cement truck. And so we turn and flip the pages and we find the cement truck and we look at that for a little bit, and then he says, tractor. And so we turn and find where the picture of the tractor is and we look at that for a minute, and then he says, backhoe, and we turn to the pages and find, and we do that, and he loves it and it's great. The problem is with his other book experience. Because we have a tradition as a family, we read something called the Advent book every December. This is a really beautifully done board book that has a page for every day of December leading up to Christmas. And on each page there's a door that you open and you read a piece of the story of Jesus' birth. And we are Nazis with this tradition, okay? You do not look at the Advent book until it is Advent book reading time, okay? And you absolutely don't go beyond what the date is. You're not allowed to look ahead. You're not allowed to look at You only have to read it in this time with the precise order that it is in, which is confusing for Sam because in the truck book, we can look around and we can go wherever we want. And he's like most toddlers I know. They, they might like books, but, but they don't have patience for the story. This is what Peter wants to teach us. He wants to say there is an end that is coming, and you should want it, because it is good beyond your imagination. You should long for it. Your life should anticipate it. But all of that will happen only if you learn patience for the story. Only if you can trust that the storyteller is good. And only if you can release your desire to flip the pages at your own pace and in your own order and entrust yourself to the one who died for you, who was raised for you, to turn the pages in his own good timing. Let's pray.